Welcome to the Trusted Advisor Podcast brought to you by Iroquois Group. Iroquois is your trusted advisor in all things insurance. This week, you're listening to the special segment of Charlie's Corner, hosted by our very own Charlie Venus. Uh, welcome to today's podcast. We're pleased to have Scott Motz today as our guest. And Scott, before we get started, can you give everyone a little bit of a, your background, your career background? Yeah, sure. Do you want the one I wish it was, or do you want what it really is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can go either okay. way, whatever's best for you. Sounds good. No, no in, uh, in reality, uh, I'm a longtime corporate veteran. I left the corporate world about five years ago, but I grew up in the Procter & Gamble organization and was uh, lucky enough to trick the company into letting me run some of their uh, very largest multi-billion dollar businesses. I'm also a um, three-time author. I do an awful lot of speaking on an international basis, teach a lot of courses uh, on LinkedIn, and I also am in the executive education program at Kelly University, their business school there. I'm a, I, I teach people that are smarter than me. And that uh, leads me up to where I am today, which is you know doing an awful lot of work as an author, a speaker, and writer. Well, thanks again for being with us today, Scott. And I want to cover several topics today with you, including some questions on leadership where you're an expert. And then uh, want to move on to discussing your most recent book, Leading from the Middle, on a couple of articles that really hit home with me because I spent 35 years as a middle manager in with various insurance companies. One that hit home was one you wrote on strengthening resilience and the flaws of introspection. And when I was reading that article, one thing that that really came to light was you described in there a situation you were in, and it wasn't a good work situation. And you got, as you described it, kind of trapped into getting a bad attitude. And I've been there personally in a similar situation. So can you give us some insight on introspection, the flaws that you see in it, and how do you strengthen your resilience overall? Excellent question. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with introspection. The Greek philosophers would have told you that we'd be nothing where we are today without it. And it's a powerful tool in a toolkit, Charlie, as long as you understand it has to be used in balance. And the danger with introspection is often that we get into an echo chamber and we spend our time introspectively bouncing the same thoughts over and over again, we're the only ones to hear it back. And then those thoughts magnify and they echo. And then those thoughts become beliefs. Then those beliefs become actions and those actions become patterns. And we have to be very careful with when introspection is good, when it isn't good. In general, I think it's a a key part of the portfolio, but when it's overused, it really tends to wear down resilience. The world we live in now is challenging enough. We don't need ourselves creating our own barriers to also overcome. I encourage all your listeners to use introspection for certain, in balance with resilience building exercises at the same time. So for example, remember that our research shows us that people who are the most resilient, they see the effects of bad events as temporary, not permanent. If we get involved in introspection without a balance of resilience building, you know, mindset, we begin to believe that these things we're continuing to think about become permanent because we're permanently thinking about them. You have to remember that you can't let setbacks prevail over other areas of your life. That's a key tenet of being resilient. When we get too introspective, when we keep thinking about the same things over and over again, 
those setbacks become mountains and the mountains, they seem insurmountable and they start to bleed into other areas of our life where we start to get introspective about the other areas of our life being impacted. When we get too introspective, we begin to pin blame too much on ourselves for bad events. And that's the opposite of what good resilience management encounters. And maybe the, the biggest problem, Charlie, I think is where you have to have the balance is if you get overly introspective, it's very easy for optimism to exit stage right. Because in your echo chamber and in your own world where your voice is the only one that you hear because you're being introspective, it's very easy to create this environment where optimism just dissipates. And you can counter that, another resilience building technique with remembering two types of optimism. First, there's unwavering, and second, there's unemotional. I'll talk about each quickly. Unwavering optimism is when you just kind of have this attitude of, look, life is 10% what happens to me, 90% how I react to it. No matter what gets in your way, you're going to be optimistic and you're going to just tear the world apart. Introspection, be damned. I, everything is good and everything is, is okay. That can be dangerous in and of itself because in that case, you're not really listening to yourself. All that time you spent being introspective is going for naught. There's a more powerful type of optimism that couples best with introspection I've found, which is called unemotional optimism. That's where you're outwardly pessimistic, but inwardly optimistic. And what I mean by that is all the things, when you're introspective, so many bad things about the world could come into your head. So many problems can, can exist. And it's okay to allow that to eke into just a little bit of pessimism or realism of, okay, this is the situation I'm really in. The more I think about it, I'm really in this point. But I'm going to choose inwardly to be very, very optimistic about it, even though I know some of what's happening in my life isn't you know, really what I want right now. It's a long way of me saying that. It's a good thing to be introspective, but you have to be very careful and measured about it. And I'll throw out one last uh, resilience piece that goes coupled up with introspection, which is called the distance principle. And this is something where I think introspection can be very dangerous as well. And here's what happens with the distance principle. It says that your progress to date has moved you so much farther forward than your mis misstep has moved you back. And here's what happens, especially with introspection. We'll be uh, you know, plugging along and then we hit a barrier. Then we get introspective when we start thinking about that barrier. God, or that misstep, how did that happen? How could that happen to me? A sense of unfairness kicks in. And the more you think about it in the echo chamber, it's no longer a misstep. It becomes a misleap, right? And it's not called a misleap. It's called a misstep, right? So we start to really catastrophize that bad step that we took. And the distance principle says, okay, put your introspection in check. And remember that your progress to date has moved you so much farther forward than your misstep has moved you back. It's like a math equation. You've come this far. You went back one step because of a misstep. That's not a misleap, it's a misstep. And the distance between how far you've come and where you started is still really, really massive. Don't let introspection kid you into thinking otherwise. That's called the distance principle. On that particular item, the distance principle, for people that are perfectionists, do you see that <laughs> being a bigger issue for them? I mean, I would think it would be. Yeah, there's no question about it. In fact, I know that psychologists most often work the distance principle with perfectionists. It's one of their key strategies to counter, which is to help them to understand that, first of all, their perfectionism is 
isn't just hurting them, it's hurting everybody around them, including their teammates. And then they also work with them to discern the difference between a misstep and a misleap. And they and using an appreciation for how far they've come to put the misstep in context. So you're 100% correct. It's disproportionately difficult for perfectionists. But I promise you that distance principle is disproportionately helpful for perfectionists as well, especially the ones that are going to spend more time in introspection than your average person. You also mentioned that a lot of people, I guess, that do a lot of introspection, they start beating themselves up and they get into like a victim mentality about everything going wrong. You know, what's your thoughts on in terms of avoiding that victim mentality? I think it's really important, Charlie, to remember that (laughs) I like to tell folks I work with, the only thing that should be a victim is your victim mentality. (laughs) And that reminds people to be a little bit more self-aware. And it it always starts with self-awareness, Charlie, always. Most often, we perpetuate into this cycle and we often don't even realize (laughs) we're doing it, right? And it's almost like we can't give away our power fast enough. We begin to beat ourselves up for something that went wrong, for a meeting that went wrong, uh, for a bad sales quarter, for a terrible interaction with a coworker. And we begin to spiral down, right, over and over again. And that victim mentality starts to kick in. And then we exacerbate that problem. And this is my opinion. This is research. It very clearly shows us this. Then we exacerbate that problem of the spiraling down by making irrelevant comparisons to people that don't matter instead of comparing to the only thing that matters, which is to who we were yesterday and whether or not we've become a better version of ourselves. So what we learn over time is we continue to spiral down and we're doing it to ourselves. And the cause of it is something that I learned from a really, really skilled hypnotherapist. And this gets at the root of our victim mentality in a way, which is, you know, I was interviewing her to understand why do we do this? Why do we spiral into this victim mentality? Why do we continue to beat ourselves up with this over and over again, this negative self-talk? And she helped me to understand that it's because regardless of your situation, we all have this thought. It's simply, I'm not good enough. And we exacerbate that problem further by irrelevant comparisons that we make to other people that make us continue to feel like we're not good enough. And when we feel like we're not good enough, what happens? Well, to counter that pain, to counter the hurt that creates, it's easier to think of yourself as a victim. Well, maybe it's not that I'm not good enough. Maybe the problem is the system around me is wronging me. That's what makes it so easy to fall into a victim mentality. It's based in this core human belief that some of us, uh, more often than others, let seep into our consciousness, which is that we're not good enough. To overcome victim mentality starts with the reality of, you know, look, the only thing that should be a victim is your victim mentality. You have to control it and own it. You have to be self-aware of what's creating that victim mentality, which is an underlying belief that you're not good enough or that the system is wronging you. And you have to counter all of that with kind of a a dose of belief in yourself. You can practice self-compassion to help with that. You can practice the 90-10 rule, which I think is very powerful. And the 90-10 rule says this, it's a ratio for how you calculate your own worth, your own value, which is to say it's based 90% on self-worth, 10% on assigned worth. Said another way, how you value yourself should be based 90% on self-worth, self-appreciation, self-love, 10% on assigned worth. What other people think of you? The, the people that assess you and that make you feel like a victim when they're not treating you in the way that, that you should be treated. And so if you can kind of remember these tricks and remember that ultimately victim mentality is something that you choose to put yourself in, 
it becomes easier to pull yourself out of it. I think that's a, something that just a lot of people struggle with and they just get in a downward spiral. So that's some great advice. Now, another topic that jumped out at me, particularly in today's world of video calls and video meetings and everybody having a cell phone and everybody being engaged 24-7, is how do you keep yourself mindfully present? Can you explain the concept and the steps to ensure that you are in the moment? For sure. And it's become a crisis, I think, in today's work world. When I talk about being mindfully present, I think the best example is to give you an example of what it isn't. How many of us have been in meetings with our bosses where all of a sudden they look at their phone, at first their eyes glance to it, and they're kind of looking at you and they're nodding, and then their eyes glance over to the phone again. And then before you know it, they're kind of nodding, but at the same time, they're actually on their phone now. And they're answering another email, or they're doing something else, or they're clearly distracted. Or how many times have you caught yourself sitting across from somebody, listening and nodding, and then five minutes after you're, you're done, someone could step into between the two of you and give you a thousand bucks and say, tell me one thing that person just said, and you can't do it. <laughs> you been there? Yes, I've been there. That is the opposite of what I'm talking about, which is being present, where you're fully engaged and energized. You're drawing energy from the other person that's speaking. You are contributing energy to the conversation. You're fully present. You're acting as if what the other person was saying is the most important thing in the world. And that is a very difficult skill. There's a couple of things to help us be mindfully present, especially in today's world with so many distractions, and even more so today with digital distractions through the roof. The first, I think, is to accept that multitasking is a lie. So you're saying we can't be on a video call and be doing email at the same time? That doesn't work? We like to think we are, but we're simply not. In fact, a professor, Earl Miller, a professor of neuroscience at MIT, he says it quite simply that, look, you simply can't focus on more than one thing at a time, right? Period. The brain literally can't do that. When you're doing two cognitive things at once, it's using the same brain. It doesn't work. Even try to parallel path a cognitive activity with a more automatic activity doesn't work. That's why the National Transportation Safety Board says that if you're texting while driving, that's the equivalent of driving with a blood alcohol level three times the legal limit, right? Because you can't do a cognitive and an automatic task at the same time, even though you think you can. What tricks us, and I'll get into how you solve this, is what tricks us is we think we're really good at doing it, right? You think you're paying attention to everything around you all at the same time, but you're not really doing that, right? The, the brain is forced to switch amongst multiple cognitive tasks because these tasks are all, they use the same part of the brain. What we're really good at is what's called task switching, which is where the brain switches back and forth between tasks at an incredible speed. And our brain does it so fast, it gives us the illusion of productivity, but it isn't. Research has actually shown that a minimum of 40% of productivity is actually lost when you're engaged in the back and forth switching, the tasks of trying to do two things at once. And again, it's so dangerous because Charlie, you, pro you probably think you're pretty good at multitasking, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I give myself high marks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> as do I. But I bet if we did, you know, strapped you up to a neural cap and cranked up the machine, you would find that it actually doesn't work that way. And it makes sense in, in the manufacturing world. This is why people that run plants, they don't like to shut down the lines and switch over the lines, 
right, to put on new products. They like to run the same line and keep cranking because you think you can do it better, but when you switch, your brain has to stop, shift gears, and move over it. Even though it does it really fast, that doesn't mean it's doing this most productively. So the first thing is to realize that, look, the truth is multitasking is a lie. It really doesn't work. So you got to stop the other thing and focus on the one. Don't multitask, single task. Single tasking is the new multitasking. You also have to be really good at catching the drift. And this is something that I coach a ton of people on, which is, I know I still work on this, Charlie, where you've been in a meeting and before you know it, you know, you're going through your grocery list and you're like, how did I get here? <laughs> There's a meeting going on in front of me, right? So to help that, what I found is, I, you know, I encourage people right at the top of their meeting agenda to write things like, you know, a reminder, don't zone out, zone in. Or be mindful, not mindful. Or run your mind. Don't let it run you. So do you, uh, one thing I did, at, this was the position I had prior to coming to Iroquois. And I had a group of people, of salespeople reporting to me. And whenever we'd have a sales meeting, I had a resort to everybody putting their cell phones in a box <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because everybody was always on their cell phones in the meeting. It's like, and you know, they weren't paying attention. It's like, look, we're in here for 45 minutes or an hour. We need everybody to be paying attention. Do you advocate for that? I think it's a great idea because of a couple of things. You know, first of all, I, I have done that before. Uh, and I do it with laptops too. You know, I've done it where in meetings, like, all right, everyone has to have to have a laptop down. And if you need the laptop, you need to explain to the group why you need it. And, you know, Charlie, look, there are times someone's waiting for key data to come in. Let's be realistic about this. But for the most part, yeah, what you're talking about is right, because what it allows you to do is what psychologists call sending signals of absorption. When you don't have the devices around you, you're now engaged and you can start to send signals that you're absorbing what the receiver is sending. So for example, you remember to maintain eye contact. You can nod at important points. You can stop to clarify. You can take notes. You can openly demonstrate your listing. Try doing any of those when you have your laptop open and someone's talking or when you have your, your phone sitting in front of you. And when you're fully engaged, feeling the meeting without your phones in the way, fully present, you'll remember someone's facial expression before they made a point really important to them. You'll remember the nervous tick before they were talking about something they were clearly uncomfortable about. You'll remember the passion and the joy with which they were telling you a recommendation they truly believed in. That's how you feel a meeting or feel an interaction. It kind of reminds me of a you know sales training course I took years ago, professional selling skills and, and other courses had the same thing, but very similar to active listening where you, you're engaged, you're listening, and you can regurgitate back what anybody in that meeting has said because you're you're that engaged in the meeting. That's right. Now, before moving on to the discussion of your book, I wanted to ask you about what you consider the top characteristics of great leaders. There's so many I could get into. I'll just, I'll highlight just a, a couple of them. I've based this on having led so many businesses on my own, Charlie, over the years uh, for three decades. And, you know, I'd said before, I was very lucky to have tricked Procter & Gamble and to let me run really, really large businesses. And so I've learned an awful lot. And I've become a scholar of it as well. And everybody has their own list and their own belief in what makes great leaders. I keep coming back to just a few things and I'll just touch on one or two things. I think the most powerful leaders when all said and done, they remember, look, it's not about them. It's about the organization they're leading. And they remember if that's true, 
then job number one is to create meaning for their organization, to create We now know from research that it's not perks, it's not promotions, it's not pay that a leader can bring to the table to motivate the troops. Not really, not for the long haul. It's a sense of meaning, of creating meaning in the work that the employees do and at the place that they do that work. You know, meaning being giving work a sense of personal significance, thus making work matter. And you imbue a sense of meaning in how you carry yourself as a leader, right? If you really want to motivate the troops You do things like helping them understand the purpose behind their work and connecting the work that they do with the higher order purpose and the thing that's bigger than themselves about the job that they're doing. If you're a a leader, a meaning-making leader, I'll call them, you remember that it's about learning and growth. You know, our research showed, Charlie, for the first time in recorded history, the number one reason an employee leaves a job is not because they have a crappy boss. It's actually because there was a lack of learning and growth opportunities. That's where we're headed, especially with millennial and Gen Z heavy workforce now. It is meaningful to see yourself learning, growing, adapting, and becoming a better version of yourself. The most meaning-making leaders help people feel a sense of competency and self-esteem. We draw tremendous meaning from knowing that we're really good at our jobs. The most meaning-based leaders create autonomy for their employees being clear on expectations and then giving them space to do the very job that they were hired to do. And the most meaning producing leaders also really just, they simply care. They remember that it's more than just them. And they remember that if you could start with empathy, if you could start with creating psychological safety for the group by inviting other points of view in, by making everyone feel comfortable that vulnerability is actually welcome, by responding in the right way when someone disagrees with you, by not condemning, but commending the opposing point of view, you create a sense of caring in the culture, which is more important than ever, especially in the hybrid workforce. So the most important thing I wanted to to show about great leaders and highlight about great leaders, I think is starts and ends with that, that you have to create meaning in an organization. Right. Does that, does that make sense? Is that consistent with what you've experienced in some great leaders, Charlie? Oh, yeah. And, I, and I've been fortunate enough to work for some really great leaders in my life. And, and all of them had those attributes. One of the follow-up questions I had was in terms of use of power. Yeah. Because the leaders that I have seen that were not, in my mind, good leaders, were the ones that overused their legitimate power <laughs> rather than expert or influential power. Yeah, I call it the dynamic of using your position power over your personal power. And the most effective leaders that I've ever seen, they don't beat their chest. And you know, if you think about it, Charlie, let's say uh, you and I are in a town hall meeting for our company and the president of the division is standing up there. You and I are in the audience sitting next to each other. More than likely, we're not paying attention and we're on our phones and we're making jokes. But all right, set that aside. And we're listening to the, you know, to the boss. And you have two scenarios. In the first scenario, the president is up there talking about how he knows everything. In this case, we'll go with a he, right? In the other case, we'll go with a she. How he knows everything. He's got all the answers. He knows exactly what's been wrong with this division, what we know we need to do to fix it. And let's all rally around each other and get it done. Right. Scenario number two. In this case, we'll use a a female president. She's more vulnerable. She says she's made mistakes. She's been part of the situation, why we've ended up where we've ended up. She doesn't have all the answers, but she knows 
We've got the right group of people together. Here are the three things we're doing to head in the right direction. She really believes we can get there working together. Which one is more appealing? The first one using his position power or the second one being a human being and using her personal power? Like it's not even close, right? We're more drawn to the people that use their personal power. And I think it's an important thing for leaders to remember. Scott, thanks so much for being with us today. Next week, we're going to dive further into your book, Leading from the Middle. Thanks for listening to this edition of Charlie's Corner, brought to you by Iroquois Group. I am Edwin K. Morris, and I invite you to join us for the next edition of the Trusted Advisor Podcast.